Welcome to I Am My Passion Project, a companion of my digital magazine, Badass Silver Streak. I'm Lorna Nickel. I'm an artist, writer, graphic designer, thinker, a renaissance woman, if you will. This podcast is a way for me to give a voice to women over 50, like myself, a platform to discuss sexism, health and wellness, redefining beauty, and healing from betrayal trauma. Without further ado, let's dig in together and figure out ways to resist societal expectations while reimagining a world where mature women are made visible and empowered to become their own passion projects. Let's do this. This is your trigger warning. This episode contains mature content and sexual information that some people might find triggering. Please be conscious of playing this episode if you have children in listening range. I recently had a conversation with my business and speaker coach, Brenda Bryan, about the components of my business offerings. During this conversation, she expressed to me that she didn't think that talking about pornography fit into my brand or the podcast focus, but I think it does, and here are four reasons why. Firstly, as those of you who listened to my fourth episode know, my husband is a recovering sex and porn addict. Since one of the ways he cheated on me was with porn, through my process of healing, I've had to do a ton of research into the topic and frankly, find the tactics and abuses of this multi-billion dollar industry appalling. Secondly, The title of my podcast is I Am My Passion Project. I feel deeply about the harms of pornography and really think it is important to use my voice and this platform to educate and inspire women to take action. Thirdly, the focus of my podcast is on women over 50. And although some might have escaped having to dip their toes into the dirty water of porn, I believe because of the pervasive nature of this topic that most of us have been touched by it in one way or another. If it hasn't been something you have dealt with in your relationship or heard others who have dealt with it, you might have children or grandchildren who, if they are using technology, are coming across it. Because unfortunately, that's a sector that is being marketed to heavily. Lastly, I believe it's important to be aware of the companies that are supporting and profiting from sexual exploitation. So you can make educated decisions about what you feel safe using or for your kids and grandkids and where you want to actually put your money, where you, who you want to back with your money. I want to add that I am not religious, and I know that there are several religious organizations that are doing the hard work to spread the word about porn, but to me, porn isn't an issue just about religious morals. It's also a secular issue regarding the human rights and equality of all humans, all human beings. I'm sharing this topic with you because I care about women and children as well as the health of our society as a whole. So I 100% support the efforts to fight against sexual exploitation and the commodifying of human beings for profit and will use my voice to spread the word in hopes that we can make some much needed changes. And with that, here we go.
Haley McNamara is the director of the International Center on Sexual Exploitation in the UK and a vice president at the US-based National Center on Sexual Exploitation. She leads international efforts and joint campaigns to improve policies and education among global governing bodies, citizenry, and corporations regarding the full web of sexual exploitation issues. Her advocacy work has contributed to policy improvements in social media, online advertising, retail, and hotel industries. She has advocated against sexual exploitation to the United Nations, led international coalition campaigns, and presented to many government officials, including Danish, Croatian, Colombian, and Rwandan. Haley regularly speaks and writes on topics including child sexual abuse, sex trafficking, prostitution, sexual objectification, the exploitation of males, and more. She has appeared on or been quoted in several outlets, the short list of which is the New York Times, NBC's The Today Show, and BBC News. She has also written op-eds for another impressive list of outlets, including the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, FoxNews.com, and Washington Examiner. But her reach doesn't end there. She has also contributed to a digital middle school curriculum regarding the links between sex trafficking and pornography, as well as the public health impacts of sex trafficking. So I would like to welcome you to the show, Haley. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast, especially during such short notice. <laughs> oh, no, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. That is quite an impressive list of accomplishments. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to this work? Were you or other people in your life touched in some way by sexual exploitation? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, it's just a reality that pretty much everyone's life is touched by some form of sexual exploitation or abuse. So growing up, you know, a very loving family, I was very blessed in those ways, but especially I remember early teens becoming aware of teenage boys and other people in my social circles were watching pornography. So that kind of, I became aware that that was common. And unfortunately, you know, as you grow older, you know people who have experienced different forms of sexual exploitation. So there were some some early kind of exposures to this topic, but certainly it wasn't what I, you know, grew up dreaming that I would someday be working on. But when I was in college, I did some internships in Washington, D.C., which is how I eventually met the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And I just started looking into the research um, because, you know, I sort of had an impression of you know, yeah, sexual harassment is bad. I knew people who were groomed online. Like I said, I knew people who viewed pornography. You know, I knew these things were out there. I had a general impression they were not good. But looking into the research really started to open my eyes that there is a huge body of research and that there's actually a movement of advocates and survivors speaking about these issues. And I remember walking around Washington, D.C., and I called my mom and I was like, mom, I feel like I need to be working on these issues, but what in the world? That job doesn't exist. And I think two weeks later was when I met 
our current CEO at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And yeah, so then it's been ever since I've just been in touch with them and then working with them. And it's been a wild ride. Wow. Yeah. So you touched a little bit on the grooming aspect of the industry, the porn industry, and I'm hoping we can get back to that in our conversation. For now, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about the history and mission of the National Center on Exploitation, which is a long <laughs> name. It's so, so long. Sometimes we call it Nkozi for short. <laughs> Nkozi. So we'll be referring to it as Nkozi from <laughs> this, this time forward. <laughs> yes, much, much easier to say. Yeah, so we were founded in 1962, sort of quite a long-standing organization. We were originally founded as a community effort in New York by a group of interfaith advocates who were specifically focused on the issue of pornography, as pornography was being shared among children in their community. And, it, you know, it's kind of quaint almost, which is maybe not the right thing to say, but compared to what is going on today, you know, there were magazines that mm -hmm. were being passed around and given to children. So they were quite concerned about that. They called it Operation Yorkville. And within a few years, they formally established a nonprofit under the name Morality and Media. You know, in the 1960s, morality was something, a word that everyone agreed on what it meant. Now it has more cultural baggage, I think. But it was from the start a really kind of interfaith group that was beginning it. And then it slowly started attracting, um, you know, secular individuals as well and people from really diverse backgrounds. So we really did undergo quite a renaissance, though, about 10 or more years ago, when our current leadership came in. And we shifted the mission and vision of the organization to really address the full spectrum of sexual exploitation, because as the internet came about, it became really clear that the issue of pornography is not in a vacuum. It's connected to issues like sexual violence, sex trafficking, and child sexual abuse and, and other things. And the research, as the internet came about, the exposure to children and adults alike to something that never existed before. You know, we look back at the 1960s and people were so concerned about these magazines, but now it's incredibly graphic and hardcore content that children often see before they have a first kiss. And it's it's ubiquitous. I mean, the exposure rates, I mean, it's almost difficult for researchers to find people now who haven't been exposed to this content. And so with that mass exposure, all of this research started to be able to be done on the effects. So that's really what our organization has focused on is being very research-based and uniting people of all faiths, political backgrounds, different persuasions, and really focused right now on a couple key projects. So we have a law center that represents survivors of sexual exploitation against institutions, that have facilitated their abuse. So for example, we have a lawsuit right now against Twitter and one against Pornhub. And we also do public policy, federal and state. And we also do corporate advocacy where we seek to hold mainstream corporations accountable 
to not facilitate sexual exploitation. It's that sounds simple. It sounds like they should, of course, they shouldn't facilitate <laughs> sexual exploitation, but unfortunately it happens a lot, especially online. So that's that's what we're up to these days. Yeah, that is a lot of work. Sounds like a lot of work to be done. And I'm hoping that there are other organizations that you're connected to that are carrying their weight in this fight too. Yes. Um, so I know lots of people think about porn as just like, oh, maybe it doesn't touch their lives or whatever. They may not think that sexual exploitation or and pornography is part of their life. But we live in a patriarchal society where objectification and sexualization is normalized just about everywhere we turn. And many people, even if they don't use it themselves, have just come to accept the fact that porn is part of our landscape. Can you talk about the harm porn has on our society? Yeah, it has multifaceted harm. And I think this is something similar to almost when I was growing up where people might have an inherent criticism of it, or maybe they don't, but there is solid research on this topic. So it's not just a matter of opinions. I would say the two big impacts on society. One is public health harms to the user themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of research. I mean, over 50 neurological studies have been done um, that show that pornography has a negative impact on the brain. And so that includes... For some people, it can become compulsive use and it desensitizes them to the content, which means that they need either more or more extreme content over time in order to achieve the same level of arousal, which is unfortunately a classic hallmark of an addictive or compulsive activity. And we know that behaviors can be compulsive or addictive, such as gambling, such as eating, et cetera. And then also has other negative impacts to the brain, including actually decreasing gray matter in the areas of motivation, decision-making. It has links to impaired impulse control. But pornography also has significant impacts on mental health of the user. A lot of people might say, oh, well, pornography could be helpful in a relationship to spice things up, or mm -hmm. it's something that can you know, make me happy and boost my mood throughout the day. People might use it in these ways, but research actually shows that increased pornography use is linked with increased depression and increased anxiety. And also that is linked with decreased relationship satisfaction, both for men and for women. Because of an anemic sex life, basically. Yes. Yeah. And truly the research actually shows I think it's primarily focused on men, this research, but that the men have to fantasize. It's more, you're more likely to have to fantasize about pornography to maintain aroused if the more pornography that you watch. So you're not able to enjoy really the individual that you're um, having an experience with. So it's it's quite interesting. Yeah, the, the multifaceted ways it has. So there's some neurological impact, mental health impact, and then that relational impact where it decreases your relationship satisfaction. And there is more, um, there's a significant amount of research showing that pornography is linked to being more sexually aggressive. Some people might push back on, they say, it's a fantasy. You know, I can watch Buzz Lightyear and know that I can't fly. But the difference with pornography being that um, you're viewing material that's typically incredibly violent mm -hmm. towards women. 
research like 90% of pornography depicting teens showed violence against the woman and that the women responded overwhelmingly with pleasure to violence. So it's putting out these sexual scripts. And then when someone is watching it, we're not watching it like we're looking at a Mona Lisa. There's a chemical reaction that's happening and an affirmation that's happening on a neurological level that is just different than looking at a painting or so yeah so these impacts on the individual and their relationship and then there's also impacts on sexual exploitation which we could go into yeah i mean because you know when you're talking about the compulsivity it makes me think about earlier in the conversation you were talking about children accessing the porn and so we know now that it starts at a really young age so I don't know how much you know about my personal history, but I am married to a recovering sex and porn addict who started looking at porn when he was nine years old. And so, you know, imagine a child not able to comprehend, you know, when he got started, it was just magazines. And then there was the internet. And then there was social media. So like it grew exponentially in the damaging uh, abusiveness of of women and what was really out there for people to access and the interactivity of it all is so it like compounds the issue so imagining children having access to this and knowing that it can take less than 11 seconds for them to find this type of material on the web mm. when they have no credit card they have no money mm-hmm to, you know, pay for anything, they don't need money. They can just hop online and see this kind of material. And what I've heard about how it affects children is that when they're brought into the world of sexuality with this sort of imagery, it doesn't allow them to come into their sexual being as an authentic person. They don't get to discover sexuality Mm -hmm authentically and naturally they're shown by media exhibitionist sexuality which is not it's not real yeah a hundred percent and yeah they're and they're shown the most extreme things first you know i i had a friend who was nine years old he was playing video games online and a pop-up came up and the so the first exposure he ever had to the concept of sex was a violent gang rape scene and what that does to a young person's mind, you know, I think too, you know, of course there's, there's agency and there's times when people take control of their lives. But I think, you know, this is something that's so good for us to talk about because there shouldn't be a stigma of like shame around. I feel so mm-hmm. bad for young men and increasingly young women. I think in the millennial age range, about 25% at least have regularly used pornography as well. So it's increasing because the internet, you know, it's it's reaching everyone. And really in so many ways, the pornography mm-hmm. industry is like predatory towards children. The fact that children are able to get onto these sites or run across them on social media. And if, again, this might almost sound quaint to some people because we're so used to the idea of the online pornography ecosystem being what it is, we tend to think, oh, well, this is what it's always been but it hasn't like a child would not be able to walk into a adult bookstore or in a, you know and 
or an adult video store, right. an adult movie theater and purchase a ticket. They wouldn't be allowed, but because it's the internet, they're fair game. And yeah, it has terrible impacts. You know, all the impacts that it has that I was talking about on adult users, think about that on a child's brain, which is so much more malleable. And it's so much more formative as, like you said, they're discovering themselves and trying to grow authentically. Yeah. Without the impact of this industry. Right. And so they're also having to deal with the shame of seeing material like this and not really knowing what to do with it, but feeling like it's secretive, like they need to keep it a secret. And then that can lead them to long-term term use of porn, keeping it secret from their partners. And then that's the damaging relational component. So you touched on a little bit about women using porn. I want to kind of like go off of that a little bit. So Betrayed Trauma Recovery, otherwise known as BTR, has a podcast episode titled, Is Pornography a Feminist Issue? With guest speaker Jessica Sky Barr, who is on the board of Culture Reframed, which was founded by Dr. Gail Dines, who is the author of Pornland. Do you know about that book, Pornland? Yes, great book. Not a fun read, but very good. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> no, reading about porn is never really fun. So in this episode, Jessica shares about the abuses of porn and says, and I'm paraphrasing now, that when even one woman offers themselves as a product in the industry, it's bad for all women. What do you think about that stance? So I'm talking about a woman who decides that they want to be a mm -hmm. uh, part of the porn industry who wants to offer themselves for money, their imagery, you know, photography on one of the ham girl sites or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree that, you know, the commodification of sex has just, it always has multifaceted harms. And I think I would also say, I think there, we are often given a false image of what that looks like. You know, we're often given the idea of, oh, well, there's this woman who's choosing between going into her high power corporate law job that day or recording a video, which is, you know, just as equally lucrative and she's as empowered as can be. And unfortunately, that's not the case for the vast, 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 vast majority of people who are actually producing that content. Most come from, I mean, research has been done on this, most come from backgrounds of childhood sexual abuse. Most have within, you know, the year previous to entering the pornography industry, either experienced homelessness or economic hardship. And most leave the industry still in a place of economic hardship, right? This is not an industry where, you know, 99.9% .9 of people go in and exit with lots of money and feeling great. And we also know they also have worse mental health and then the average population being in pornography causes a lot of trauma. You know, there's an inherent need to disassociate quite often in that, which is psychologically damaging. And the more that you disassociate, you know, there's some compounding effects there. And there's also, you know, many cases of documented physical trauma and harms that come from 
being in the pornography industry as well. So I think that, you know, it's just really good to kind of reset the bar of where that's at because people have an idea of it that is often not really reflective of the reality. Yeah. And, and I think, and others have said this better than me, but you know, it's, yeah, there's, there's just like an inherent position of vulnerability for most of these people. And it does have impacts when this is happening to some women. And also, unfortunately, through the eyes of men, every woman is a potential person in the pornography industry. So for example, taking images of women without their consent, recording women without their consent, this is a huge issue right now. And I think it's in some ways because they think, well, what makes you so special? Like I can create a deep fake artificial nude image of you if I want, because every woman could be, you know, a, a sexual object, basically. Yeah. And I think that that's what she's talking about when she mentions that, like when you decide to become part of that industry where you're allowing your body, you know, to be bought and sold, basically, you're setting an example to the patriarchy, basically, to men saying, this is how women Mm-hmm. can be treated. This is okay in our society to objectify and sexualize. And I'm not even talking just like older women, mm-hmm. children, like little girls. This is an okay thing to do. And I think that a lot of the men that are looking at porn that are mm-hmm. family men don't realize also when they're raising young girls, there's this of what they think women should how they should be accessed, how they should be able to be used by them from, oh, this is this is a human being in my family who is a child who, you know, is a girl and she's going to grow up being looked at the same way that I am looking at these other women and the way that I am treating them. That's her future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's always, there's kind of at the core here, even a dark thing that humans can do that so often lead to human rights violations or exploitation, which is like the othering right. of a certain group yep. of people and saying, well, my people, my tribe, people who look like me or people who are connected to me, we're one group, but this other group, like we can designate as lesser than or subhuman or as like sex objects that we can use whenever you start seeing that dynamic in history there's always like mass harm and trouble that's being caused yeah yeah so i consider myself more of a second wave feminist Mm -hmm. but my understanding is that a component of the third wave feminism that's happening right now seems to give porn a green light when talking about sex positivity and Mm -hmm. i believe porn is problematic in that context in the context of feminism because it tears down women while supporting the patriarchy who constructed it what are your thoughts on sex positivity and the use of porn yeah i i mean i i completely agree with you you know and some of it i think in this current or third wave, there's this almost hyper individuality where it's saying, well, if an individual chooses it, it is good without recognition of implications or impacts on women as a whole. (laughs) 
And so, yeah, I think that that's really significant, just a significant difference in, in the way that some of those things are viewed from the feminist lens. And then, yeah, the sex positivity, you know, I think it's like, I said, yeah, it's very, very, it's very individualistic. Mm -hmm. It also really centers the most privileged voices. You know, like I had mentioned, the people who are truly choosing it out of a plethora of options, because again, you have to have options for it to be a choice, viable options. The people that's, it's the incredible minority. And it's typically people who come from very privileged socioeconomic and even like race backgrounds compared to the majority of people who are in it who do not come from that level of privilege. And then I also think just the sex positivity label in general, I'm thinking, well, sex positive for who? Because as I kind of was saying earlier, there's so much research that show this is actually not positive. I mean, for the users or for the partners of users, it's hurting people's sex lives off screen. And then of course there is you know, the psychological and physical trauma that often happens to many performers as well. So who is this right. sex positive for? You know, it's know. not when you start really digging into those details, maybe it's like positive for the pockets of big pornography companies. I think, that's <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the truth. And I, I really like that you brought up the privilege aspect of it, you know, that because the if the women who are talking about it being empowering, I feel like those are the women of that are sitting in privilege that have that choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people who are struggling to pay rent are not putting out press statements about how great their time in pornography right. is. You know, only those who are doing the media. You know, those those are often the very very most privileged. Yeah. So I know you just came out with your annual dirty dozen list. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how this list of companies came to be. Yes. So the dirty dozen list, it's a list of annual corporations and sometimes entities that facilitate sexual exploitation and abuse. It's been going on for 10 years now. So this really came about through just seeing how pornography and also other forms of sexual exploitation seep into our everyday lives in ways that we sometimes don't even realize it. So for example, there are bad policies at places like Instagram or Roblox is a video game for children or YouTube or all of these different companies where either pornography or online grooming for exploitation are are happening. So we make this list and it's not just depressing education. It's also an activism tool. We make draft emails that you can send to corporate executives within just a few clicks of a button. You could contact so many corporate executives. You could send pre-written social media statements and a lot more to really call these corporations out and put some public pressure on them to do better. Who are the top three offenders on your current Dirty Dozen list? And Can we get a little background on why they made that list? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting list because we're not always saying that each company is the absolute worst company on the list. You know, we could put so many pornography platforms on there, for example, if we were making it the worst of the worst, but we're trying to have companies that touch 
people's average lives and that they might not realize are facilitating exploitation. So one that I would say is really, really horrific is the an app, free messaging app called Kick. It's often used by teens, even kids. We created a fake minor account on Kick and within minutes were contacted by adult men asking us to send explicit videos, people adding this fake account of a minor to group chats uh, where they were sharing explicit photos of adults and of children. And, and they knew that this account was posing as a minor. So Kick is a really horrific app that I think I mean, it's, it's almost like, what could they do to improve themselves? They're just a cesspool, in my personal opinion. So that's that's one, that's like a pretty extreme example. Hearing about that is just appalling to me. It's so gross. And I, you brought up the grooming aspect twice now. And so within that context of kick, can you talk about what, because I don't know that everyone knows what grooming is in the sex and porn industry. and I know that it affects adults, but also children. Mm -hmm. Like it's mostly about children. Yeah, it can look a lot of different ways. So on kick, it was very overt. You know, it was almost immediately soliciting for child sexual abuse materials. But there's, there's a lot of different ways grooming can go. Very often, if we're talking online and children, very typically it'll be a person contacting the child online, building a rapport, building a relationship, building trust. Sometimes they'll own the fact that they're an adult and maybe say, you know, oh, your parents don't understand you. Or sometimes they might pose Mm -hmm. as a teen or child themselves. Sometimes they'll pose as a potential romantic interest and they'll make this child or, you know, this happens with adults too, believe that they're in a romantic relationship with someone who, and then it's, so it's really building a relationship for purpose of sexual exploitation or abuse. And that could be anything from sending explicit materials to doing live streams to meeting in person. You know, unfortunately it can really just from that point on go off in a lot of different and dark ways. Yeah. I mean, I think that another aspect of it is the normalization of this type of behavior, trying to show children, oh, this is fine. This is a normal thing. You mm-hmm. know, your friends are doing it or whatever. And then also, since I'm in a relationship with a recovering sex and porn addict, I've talked to him about the grooming that can happen in the relationship and also like with some of his family members where the attitude was, oh, boys will be boys. And I did porn and that's just fine. And in my mind, when I had that conversation with them afterwards, I was like, they were just grooming me. That's what was going on in that conversation. They were trying to make it seem like porn should be okay. Like everyone does it and I should just be okay and go along with that. Yeah, and for adults as well, but especially for children, Pornography is so often used as a tool or example of, see, this is okay. This is what people do when they love each other. You know, it's it's normal. This is what's happening. It's normal. And that actually leads to another dirty dozen list target that I think, especially if you have parents listening to this, should really be aware of called Roblox, which is 
a pretty child-centric video game and gaming platform. I mean, I have a young brother who growing up, he loved playing Roblox. You're kind of creating your own world. But unfortunately, Roblox makes it very easy for adult predators to contact children. And sometimes there are even rooms or sections within the Roblox universe where people will have like a strip club or, you know, have characters take off their clothes. Now, these are not really explicit characters. They kind of look like building blocks. It's not really graphic, but we do know that predators will sometimes utilize that ability in the game to kind of be as they're beginning the grooming process with with children, in addition to just building relationships through the game. Right. Yeah. Because they're using it as a tool. Yeah. So I read your list and I I was really shocked when on the list I heard about Google, the Chrome pads that were distributed to schools and that parents mm-hmm. often buy for their children at schools that have no protections on them and that the company won't actually install protections on them for searching the internet. So these children are given these Chromebooks and then they can just look up whatever. And as we have just talked about earlier in the conversation, 11 seconds, 11 seconds, less than that probably. And they're, they're onto some porn. Yeah. The good, actually there's good news here. And it's an example of why I love the dirty dozen list because it actually can help create change because so Chromebooks was on our dirty dozen list last year, but we removed them for this year because they fixed it. I can't believe it. We, I mean, but we were going to them for probably two years because especially like you said, they were handing these out through school programs and especially with the rise of COVID. So there were approximately 50 million children being given these devices throughout the country and like you said, no safety de- safety things turned on when they know that it's going to school children. And at first, Google pushed back on us and said that they didn't think that it was their job to fix it. They thought that, well, the teacher should go in and, you know, for every one of the 35 kids in their class should go in and change the thing. Or maybe it was up to the parents. You know, the parents were working, you know, both two jobs and are supposed to come home and figure out like this complex technology that has so many different steps to turn on parental controls. And we were saying, no, you could just fix it from the start and make it safe before you give it to children. And they were really impacted by being on the dirty dozen list and having parents contact them and tell them that this was a problem for their family. So they have now turned on safe, you know, safe search and a number of other safety features automatically for these devices, which I think it's really exciting, but it shows, you know, sometimes with a big company like Google, we can feel like, well, it's the lost cause. There's not something that we as individuals can do, but really, actually, if we do speak up, it can have a really big impact. Yeah. I love that the, the dirty dozen list is actually making an impact in igniting these companies to make changes. Cause I saw like Amazon was number one on your list. And I had no idea that they were associated with cam girls. And you know, eBay's on our list this year because of a similar reason why Amazon's been on the list as well for selling childlike sex dolls. 
I can't believe that. Like some of the most horrific stuff. It's so hard doing the research for this project because it can get quite depressing. And we have to remind ourselves, you know, by the end of the year, many of these policies will be changed. And we have gotten companies like Etsy and Amazon to stop selling these childlike sex dolls. So there's real potential for us by the end of the year, you know, and I encourage people to go to dirtydozenlist.com and to take the actions because we can now tell eBay, hey, there's a new industry standard coming about to not sell this terrible content. So you should join that. Right. Yeah. So I was really excited that you agreed to do the interview. And then my heart kind of sank a little bit when I realized that I was going to have to do dig back into some more research that I had done mm -hmm. in the past and look at some more material about sex and porn, because it really is like so traumatizing to just when you really realize all, all of the different ways that porn harms people and children. And it just, I, it makes me so angry. I just like, mm -hmm. I knew that, okay, today's the day I have to do that self-care sandwich. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Anyone listening goes on a walk after two, you know, it's really dark topics, but I do think like we are, I think, approaching a turning point in our society and how we're viewing or acting on these issues. Like I do, they're so dark, there's so much trauma, but there's also so much hope. Not only are these mainstream companies making changes, is it slower than I want? Yes. It's like, please just think about it before you release something new to all of these companies, just make it safe by default. But um, but they, but there is progress happening. And I also think on the pornography issue specifically, you know, there are at least five active lawsuits right now against survivors who had exploitation, including child sexual abuse or sex trafficking images uploaded onto major pornography websites. So like survivors are stepping forward more than ever. And I think there's a more of an international recognition that pornography is especially harmful to children. In the United States, there's a number of either age verification or even better device filter bills that are circulating state by state. But even internationally, you know, there's legislation in England that's being considered that would require age verification to keep kids off of pornography platforms. And France and Germany have also been pursuing that legislation in really meaningful ways. So I think within five years, I'm hopeful, five, seven years, I'm hopeful that we'll have kind of a new standard of really making sure that children aren't exposed to this content and hopefully increasing mainstream platforms awareness too, that if you're allowing this content, the odds of exploitation being recorded and uploaded onto your site is very high. And so maybe you just shouldn't host the content. Right. So I am hopeful. I think there's a lot of progress that's happening. And I think that when we are brave, you know, enough to speak about this, especially with friends or family who maybe aren't on the same page as us, but just talking to them about the research or the stories of survivors, it does help shift the cultural consensus on this issue. Are there some big legislation things that you're working on for the future? And what what do you think are the biggest, like what's maybe one of the biggest accomplishments that Encozy has made? 
Yeah. So man, when it comes to accomplishments, you know, I'm really proud of the the change with the Google Chromebooks. I'm glad that you mentioned that we've had five major hotel chains stop selling on-demand pornography in their hotel room. We've changed, we've made it more difficult for adult strangers to direct message minors on both Instagram and TikTok. So a number of, of improvements in the private sector. I think also, you know, having our law center that can do civil litigation on behalf of survivors. You know, we're in an active lawsuit with Pornhub right now. I'm really thankful that we can kind of give survivors what will hopefully be some access to justice through that. And as far as upcoming legislation, there are these device filter bills that are going through some states right now that are really strong. We think they're really strong constitutionally, and it would require something like an iPhone or an iPad if it's bought by a minor or bought for a minor, having all of the safety filters turned on by default. And Mm. if someone wants to turn off the filters, they can, they just have to show that they're an adult, which is quite easy for an adult to do. And you don't even need to say what you want the filters off for, but having them on by default and having it that children cannot turn them off is a really great protective mechanism. And then I would also, at the federal level, we have the Earn It Act right now is introduced. And I encourage you to contact your representatives and telling them to support the Earn It Act because it would make technology companies have liability if they know that they're facilitating child sexual abuse materials, which is child pornography. Because right now they don't, they think that they have immunity from liability because of misinterpretations of old law. So we need it to be clarified that if they know that there's child pornography on their platform and if they don't remove it or take steps to stop it, then they should be able to be sued by the survivors who are in that material. So what are some other steps that listeners can do to help your organization? I would love it if people would go to dirtydozenlist.com and they can take actions, learn more about these targets and also the past victories. That's a really helpful thing to do. And yeah, just follow, follow along with us, follow us on social media. You know, we always are trying to give out different actions and things that people can do to be part of the solution because we really need everyone taking action together to make change. Yeah. And I think also spreading the word, everyone out there, please spread the word. And on Giving Tuesday, you know who to highlight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, thanks for being on my podcast, Haley. And I really appreciate the time that you took to talk about your organization. And it's just such a hot topic right now in our day and age. So I really applaud all of the work that you're doing. And I'm so grateful that you and all the people on your team are putting your toes in that dirty water and doing the best that you can to clean it up Mm -hmm. for us. Thank you so much. Thank you for all, all that you're doing as well. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Am My Passion Project. New episodes drop every Friday. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing with a friend or two or more. 
or leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I hope you're able to move through your week, speaking your own truth and embracing your badass self. I am my passion project.